reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of of God. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the chalice after supper, saying, This chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it was that would do this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who assembled to see the sight And when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and saw these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So guys, uh, just so you know, uh, those are kind of like Catholic things to know. When uh, we start a Gospel reading, we usually say, uh, reading from the Holy Gospel according to... Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the response is, glory to you, O Lord, and you do the little, the signs over your head, your uh, mouth, and your heart, and what that comes from is actually uh, the prayer that the priest prays uh, before, or the deacon prays before he reads the gospel at mass, he prays that the Lord would cleanse my heart, O Lord, and my lips, that I might proclaim your gospel worthily and well, right, so your mind, that you might know God, your mouth, that you might speak of him and your heart that you might love him more. So just a kind of a a little Catholic uh, liturgical thing. The reason I chose to read uh, those two passages, which seem somewhat disparate, although they're not very far away from one another in the gospel today, was because we're going to continue talking about what Father Jonathan began last week with the sacred liturgy. And uh, specifically, we're going to talk about the Eucharist today. Now, before we do that, I want to kind of give us an opportunity uh, to review a little bit of what Father Jonathan had to say. Um, So when we talk about the liturgy, what is the liturgy? What did Father Jonathan offer us as a kind of a a definition, or what did you take from last week uh, that you remember? What's the liturgy? Yes. It's not the word. It's the work of man. Okay. Well, so it's not merely the work of man, but it is the work of it is. It's the work of, yeah, yeah. It's a work on behalf of us by God, right? And it, we participate in it, right? But it's important that it's always the work of, of God first. It's the work of Christ, the head, and the members. 
Um, and kind of to flesh that out a little bit more practically speaking, the liturgy is the official public prayer of the church, right? It's uh, the, the, the place in which we encounter uh, the Lord preeminently here on earth because it's a little foretaste of heaven. Um, when we talk about liturgy then, uh, there's a, 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 like a, an order to it. Um, it's regulated by the law of the church. And of course, we have freedom to pray in whatever way we desire to pray on our own. But when we come to the liturgy, right, we pray, we worship as God has ordained and the way the law of the church requires. This is because liturgy is communal. It can't be subject to the whims of just individuals. Right? And it all goes back to that gospel reading that I just read. Um, because Christ did it a certain way, right? He, he made it possible for us to participate in a certain way. Um, it's also required that we participate in the liturgy in a certain way because the liturgy is an expression of unity. It's an expression of the oneness of the faith. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that it has to be absolutely positively like there's only one way of doing this, right? There's a bunch of different rites in the church, actually. But there has to be a unity in the and the underlying form of the, the liturgy. Because also it must, uh, another reason that we need to worship in the way the law of the church requires is because the liturgy is an expression of faith. It needs to be regulated by the teaching authority of the church. There's an idea that what we do in prayer um, is what we believe. And so there's a certain necessity. Um, there's a law of prayer that, translates into a law of believing. Um, so it's one of the things that Father Jonathan mentioned last week that's uh, super important is that the liturgy is carried out visibly and audibly in the church, right? Why, do, why was that? Why do you think that uh, God ordained it such that we would have these things? Why, why not just our mind? Yeah. It shows commitment. Okay, it shows commitment. Why is that? Because you have to, to decide that you're actually going to orally say something. Good, yeah. To just passively think. Yeah. It's active. Good, yeah. So because, uh, in other words, because we're human beings, right? And we express things, we express our consent through our bodily actions. Um, another way of putting that is that love, uh, like if you love someone, you want to hug them, right? Like there's like a bodily action uh, associated with, with our, our, our like expression of uh, love, of worship, of adoration. If we aren't angels and we don't worship like angels, angels have like a, a well, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert at angel worship, but uh, they have some sort of mental action that they take. And we also have a mental action that we take, of course, right? But that's expressed in, our, uh, in bodily signs. Um, we, it, can't be, um, it can't be limited to either just signs or just uh, mental action for human beings, though. We need both. Like, we express adoration by kneeling. You know, you, just like you express a greeting by shaking a hand. Um, there's this kind of fittingness of these signs. Um, 
Let's see. Also in art and music that we make for the glory of God. There's a, a certain fittingness to that. Um, we're, we've been given dominion also over the material creation as human beings. If you look in Genesis, uh, right, to keep until. And so we're supposed to order everything around us to the service of the liturgy. Actually, that's kind of, if you read one of the ways to interpret the first, uh, the first chapter of Genesis, the first creation story is um, it probably was written by uh, a priest and he's telling like, this looks a lot like the temple, right? Which it does, right? That there's, there's kind of uh, these, these things happening and there's temple worship. There's a, a, an ordering to the Sabbath even um, in, in Genesis. Um, and then, okay, so we, we said that the liturgy is the work of Christ the head in union with his members for the sanctification of his people, of, of us and the glory of God. And we're sanctified by giving glory to God. Um, and then the liturgy is a force for unity. So we have to do it a certain way, right? And it's good that it's material because we're human beings. Um, that's, it's actually a gift of the Lord. And then the liturgy, of course, is communal. We do it together um, because we're social beings by nature, and thus God calls us to worship together. You can't just, you, you, of course, you can pray to God in your inner room by yourself, but Jesus tells us to do that, but you can't just do that. Right? There's, there's a reality. All right, so what are examples of liturgies that you guys have encountered already? Okay, good. So the Mass is a type of liturgy. Yeah, so they, the Mass is like a sub-part a sub of the liturgy in general. Okay, good. Yeah, so the Mass is one example? Yes. Yeah, so. What else would come under liturgy? I'm asking you. What do you think? Not the Stations of the Cross, actually. That's a, a private devotion, yeah. Uh, gifts of, of the Spirit. Uh, so not the Gifts of the Spirit. Like those are those are things that are good, right? But they're they're not a liturgical action. Think of what we've been talking about recently, Is there Atlanta. The liturgy of the hours, great. So that's the public prayer of the church. We've prayed it one time in here, um, and uh, we prayed vespers. Um, some of y'all weren't here because it was before the the UCCers got back. We'll do that again uh, eventually uh, together. Um, so the liturgy of the hours is the public prayer of the church that's recited by or sung by. Clerics, um, so that's people like me, priests, deacons, bishops. It's also recited or sung by um, religious brothers and sisters. But it's actually a prayer for everybody, right? Like everyone is supposed to be, or not supposed to be, but everyone is invited to pray along that. It flows from the Mass and it returns to the Mass. It's the recitation of the Psalms. It actually finds its origin in the temple liturgy. Uh, like if you, they would say certain Psalms at certain times of day. Um, okay, what else? Sir, ma'am? Yeah, actually, blessings are, yeah, if they're, uh, they are liturgical actions, so that's good. Um, so any type of blessing is a, liturg- is a liturgical action. Yes? Baptism. Good, yeah. So the, the things we've been talking about, the sacraments. The sacraments are part of the liturgy of the church. Why is that? Because... What happens in the sacraments? What are the, what is, we've talked about this a few times. What's the definition of a sacrament? Yes, so. Okay, good. Nick, I saw your hand too. I was going to say, um, I'm trying to remember, but I'm trying to 
but like uh, real uh, examples of God's grace that we can like see and experience. Yeah. So you guys are you guys are uh, you're saying that something you're saying what's right, but let's just put it in a little more succinct. An efficacious sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Okay. Yeah. So if you wanted to put it all together, so it's a sign which causes that which it signifies. And it's instituted by Christ in order to give grace. What's grace? A gift, right? Yeah, a gift. What was, Suzanne? It's a gift that helps us become more like Christ. Good, yeah. I think that, that that's a really good specification, right? That a grace is a participation in uh, God's own life. So it's a sharing in his, his life. Um, not by right, but by the free gift of God given to us. So um, a grace, like, and we talked about how there's grace which habitually ad- adheres to us, like is a quality of our soul. Um, when we love God above all things, um, that's called sanctifying grace. It causes us to love God above all things. And then there's actual graces. So actual graces are like, um, like particular things that help us to do that. So for example... Uh, uh, coming here, like being making the decision to come to this tonight was a graced action. Um, or praying, like if you've ever just said, oh, I need to pray right now. <laughs> That's a grace, right? Or on the other hand, if you have, uh, if you're like, I don't want to pray right now and you decide to pray, right? <laughs> That's, That's, there's a grace. So um, we receive a participation, a particular participation in the life of grace through the sacraments, namely sanctifying grace. Um, And thus, this is a work of sanctification uh, accomplished by the head and the members. So it's a liturgical act. Okay, good. So tonight, we're going to continue rolling through the, the sacraments and returning to the Eucharist. So instead of uh, starting with more lecture, because I've already talked for 20 minutes here, I want you all to take about 30 minutes here, 35 minutes, and uh, dive into the Bible study that your leaders have. It's going to be on John chapter 6, which is going to talk a lot about uh, the Eucharist. All right, good. Um, so I hope, guys, that uh, you, as you were reading through the scriptures and you guys went through that Bible study, that the emphasis, uh, there, there were two things that you got out of that Bible study, so I'll just repeat them real quick. Um, the way that the Lord speaks in John 6 is very, very clear, and he's not speaking symbolically, right? Um, and uh, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life with him, right? Like with life within him. So those two things, and, and I know this is, a, this is a, a, one, of, one of the folks at our table said, um, you know, this is hard, right? <laughs> like it's, it's a challenging teaching to accept. It's a, a, a teaching that needs to be um, grappled with, and it's a teaching that um, ultimately can only be accepted by uh, the grace of God working in our life and moving us to a supernatural act of faith. So if you're struggling right now with the Eucharist, I hope that what I'm about to say will help Right? I hope that some of the explanations that uh, I can give and that um, maybe Father Doug uh, can give and that other people who are smarter than us can, can give uh, will help you to see the reasonableness of the faith in the, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. But it's not something that um, you could reason to just by yourself. Right? No one would have expected what Jesus did. 
but it makes sense in the context of all the covenants before, and um, it makes sense in the, the idea of love desires union. Love desires union. Um, God wishes to dwell with us, to be present with us, and uh, whatever's received, right? Love has to be received not according to the mode of the giver of the love, but in a, in a certain sense into the, the court of the, the one who receives it, right? It's one of my favorite saints, St. John Bosco, he said, and he worked with youth um, and, uh, in Italy in the 19th century. He said, it's not enough that the boys we work with, uh, it's not enough that we love them, right? It's not enough. They have to know that we love them. And the Eucharist is the continued expression of God's love in our life in a way that we can understand in a a certain sense, right? In a way that by faith we can approach and know whether we feel it or not that God loves us, that he desires to be with us and uh, yeah, that he has indeed redeemed us. So if we uh, look in uh, the scriptures, uh, we, we've talked about how all of the sacraments have their basis in Holy Scripture. And of course, we read John 6 already, and that's one place where there's a lot about the Eucharist. I read the institution narrative from St. Luke's Gospel. There's also one in Mark and in Matthew that I'm not going to uh, read out loud right now, but you can find those if you'd like. Um, the Eucharist is also talked about in uh, Acts 2.42, when it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, um, to the apostles' teaching. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, um, where there's, um, St. Paul talks about discerning the presence of the Lord, discerning the Lord, and making an examination of our own hearts uh, based on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Let me read a little passage from that. Um, Yeah. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to a sensible men, as to sensible men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, one bread, right? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, right? You, there's a certain um, importance given to this bread, this blessed bread and this blessed cup uh, that St. Paul mentions. And of course, when you see that word bread there, what he's talking about is the Eucharist itself. Again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, um, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians um, 11, then he talks about discerning the body and the blood of Christ. Um, He also gives the institution narrative once again. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the chalice after supper, saying, This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Um, brothers and sisters, it, the reality is um, if, if the Lord had been speaking symbolically, if the Lord had been talking in a way that, that lent itself to kind of just a merely spiritual interpretation of what he was saying uh, in John 6 and in his teaching, um, St. Paul wouldn't have said those types of things. He wouldn't uh, have uh, been this emphatic about receiving the Eucharist worthily. Um, the Lord uh, doubles down over and over again, as y'all saw in John chapter 6. So how do we understand then this mysterious presence as Catholics um, of the Eucharist, of the Lord's presence in the Eucharist, the fact that he is there? We call it the real presence. Um, the bread and the wine and the Eucharist become the body and blood of Christ. How do we explain that? How do we... What, you know, because what theology is, what we're kind of doing right now is giving an account of the reasonableness of faith and using the data that we have from faith to understand more about what the Lord has taught. Historically, um, this is this change that the bread and the wine uh, undergo uh, has come to be known as transubstantiation. So it's a big word, transubstantiation, right? It's the name uh, that the church gives to what happens in the Eucharist. It means a change of substance, and it's a specific type of a change in substance. So you think about um, this, this word uh, uses terminology that comes from Greek philosophy. Um, this happens a lot in, uh, in Try, people trying to explain the faith, we pick up some terms from Greek philosophy. Um, a substance is something that exists in itself. You're a substance. I'm a substance. Your dog is a substance. A cat is a substance. A tree, a piece of bread is a substance. And an accident is something that exists in another thing. White is an accident, although this is not white. It's kind of like this weird blue um, color, right? White or blue or... Uh, um, height, color, taste, smell, relationship. These are accidents. Substance has to do with some, what something is, right? What are you? No, what are you? Good. You've been listening. Good. What are you? If I just asked you, what are you? A, a person. Good. That's a good answer. Uh, a human being, which is a person. But uh, yeah, a human, right? Uh, uh, but I could ask, uh, you know, uh, and then like how tall you are, right? Does your height have something to do with you being a person? No, right? Like you could be smaller or, or taller and you still be a person. You could have, uh, how, we got like seven different colors of hair or no hair in this room, right? Um, actually, I don't think anyone's bald here. Anyone bald? Uh, Preston, sort of. Uh, he's getting there, working on it. Um, Father Doug is too, so it's okay. We're, right? Me too, it's okay. It's all right. Um, 
So substance has to do with what's something. He'll get me back later. It's okay. He's going to call me a heretic later. It'll be great. Uh, no. Uh, substance has to do with what something is. Accident has to do with something that it, uh, how something appears to us, right? So um, in the consecration, the substance of the bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, but the accidents of the bread and the wine, the color, the texture, the taste, the smell, uh, they remain. The appearances are still there, but the reality has changed. The reality has changed. So you think about that. Um, This is not something that you run into, right? Like in any other situation. In fact, this is a a, a very unique situation. Thing, right? When substances change, accidents tends to accidents also tend to change. They, in fact, almost always do. Um, so if I, uh, if right, like if I take flour and water and yeast and put it together, uh, and so those are all substances: flour, water, and yeast. Put them together, bake it. It's now no longer flour, water, and yeast. It's bread, and the accidents have changed. Or if you're Zerlena and you make all of your, all of our cookies every week, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's not all those things anymore. It's a cookie, right? It's a, it has its own substance, and what a great substance it is. Um, but in the Eucharist, it's not this way, right? The accidents remain, and the substance changes. Christ's presence in the Eucharist is a mysterious manner. Then, is in a mysterious manner. Then, for example, when you break the host. Uh, the body of Christ is not broken in two. The presence, while uh, real and mysterious, uh, is, I'm sorry, while not, while mysterious is not merely symbolic, right? It's real and substantial. Real and substantial. That's how we talk about it as Catholics. The transformation of the substance of bread and wine is affected by the words of Christ. Um, so spoken by a priest and, um, you think about like Christ's words, they're powerful. Lazarus come out and the dead man literally stands up and walks out of the tomb. (laughs) Little girl, I say to you, arise. She stands up, she's dead and she stands up, right? Like his words are powerful. When Jesus says, this is my body. It happens. And um, in the mass is when it happens. So we talk about then the real presence and then how do, we, how do we encounter the Eucharist? Well, primarily through the sacrifice of the mass. Now we're going to back up a little bit here um, and stop. We're going <laughs> to do kind of a, a little, uh, it's on the way, but it's not going to seem like we're on the way to understanding the Eucharist more. Um, when we're talking about this. What is a sacrifice? What is a sacrifice? Can I ask a question? Yep. Yep. All right, so... (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Go. How do you eat a substance? Because, like... Well, you... No, but, like... uh, Okay. So the bread is there, right? And then then the bread goes in your mouth, and then it goes into your body. Describing what eating is. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, the bread stops, ceases to be. Yeah, the accidents are changing because it's moved the accidents from over there to over here, and now 
Yeah, good, yeah. Uh, but the substance, where does the, is the substance inside of it? Is it the thing that you're doing? The substance stops. It exists, and then it ceases to exist at some point. Uh, when, when like, uh, the material no longer is capable of being that substance. <laughs> That's... Because you're, you're eating bread. Yeah. But I'm just trying to understand the difference between, like, saying I'm literally eating a substance, but it's not physically the accidents, and saying it's just a symbol. Like, how are those not just two different ways of saying the same thing? Yeah, well, so a symbol isn't that which it, like, the stop sign doesn't, doesn't like, um, contain stop within it, right? Um, but it's the accident, it has the substance, or I don't know. Well, the stop sign has the substance of a stop sign, or maybe metal. We can, I don't know what the best way to describe that. Uh, <laughs> This gets hairy, right? Uh, but no, so, so that's a good question. It's not a symbol, though. It's not merely a symbol. It's not merely symbolic. Okay? Yes? Are you trying to get at why the, uh, what happens to the body of Christ when you receive communion? The substance, where does it go? Like, is it inside of the bread and then it goes and hangs out your body for a while and then no, the, the, part of your the, body or becomes a part of your substance? Your, is your substance good. eating the substance? Is your body I, <laughs> well, you are eating, yeah. You are eating. When you have the Eucharist, the substance of the bread has changed into the substance of Christ's body. And the appearances of bread are still a color of certain spatial dimensions, a taste, a smell. When you receive communion and you chew the host, you swallow it, changes changes begin to happen but they only are happening to the appearances of the bread. Um, just as when the priest breaks the host, Christ's body, which is in heaven, does not get broken into two pieces. What happens is that the body is not present in both of those, underneath both of those uh, appearances. So when you consume the host, you're not, um, you're not uh, changing the body of Christ. Eventually, the accidents become so changed, the appearances of bread become so changed that they no longer appear like bread anymore. That happens some, some minutes after you receive communion. And then what we say is that Christ's body is present, um, the substance of his body is present, for as long as the appearances of bread and wine. Um, so when you receive communion, Christ's body comes inside of you, and it's still inside of you for some few minutes, until eventually, you don't know exactly when. There's no longer, there are no longer any appearances of bread inside you, and when the appearances of, are gone, the mysterious presence of Christ is gone. Yeah. So it lasts for a second. The, the, yeah. the real presence of Christ is gone, but the effects of grace, right? Because the sacraments are ordered to giving you grace, right? Does that make sense? The sacrament. Christ's body would be inside you for a few minutes. Right. But during the time that it's inside of you, Christ's body is exerting spiritual influence on your soul. Yeah. If you don't resist it. It's, uh, it's just particularly and especially, it's increasing your charity. Incre- increasing yeah. your love of God. And it, so, yeah. even though Christ's body is only present for a few minutes, 
that effect, that spiritual effect, the increase of charity, it should still continue to be uh, present. I, ideally, for the rest of your life, you'll just keep growing. God and you will more and more and more forever. Good. And every time you receive communion, you'll, um, it'll grow. Now, it might not last forever, but you might um, backtrack on loving God and whatever sin and else gets in the way, but the effect, the effect will remain even after Okay, yep. Can you explain the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation? So uh, I'm not an expert at, at Reformed theology, but uh, I believe consubstantiation would be like the idea that um, the bread, that the substance of Christ and the substance of the bread like coexist. Is that correct, Father Doug? Is that a good understanding. Father Doug is an expert, at, is, is more expert at this than I am. So uh, I just want to make sure that that's, uh, that's good. Luther and the Reformers, um, especially Luther, had a theory of the Eucharist that, that the, um, the, the body of Christ was present along with the bread. Okay? So he did not want to say that the bread was changed into Christ's body, but the Christ's body became present along with the bread. He used, I believe, the analogy of a white-hot piece of iron, that when you put it in the fire and it gets really hot, um, the heat is, you know, in the iron. Right? That was Luther's idea. And it was very much tied with Luther's idea that the presence of Christ, which he believed in some kind of real presence, it was very much tied to the idea that it only lasts um, as long as the... Um, the Lord's Supper is being celebrated. And maybe even that it's only there if a true believer is um, is receiving it. So that if a um, if an unbeliever comes in there and receives it, that he won't receive Christ's body. He will only be there for true believers, only for as long as the Lord's Supper is being celebrated. So a Lutheran might have no problem afterwards if, um, if you had the Lord's Supper and not all of it was consumed. They would might just say, well, it's regular bread again, we can just, we can throw it out or, or whatever. But a Catholic would never do that because we believe that the bread is actually changed into Christ's body, which means there's a more kind of objective and absolute reality to it. Yep. So uh, even if you're not a true believer and you receive it, that's Christ's body coming inside. Maybe even that could be a problem. It could be spiritually dangerous if you don't receive them with faith and um, and obedience, and we would never throw the host away after mass. We would say that it um, that that's still Christ's body. There. That's why we gather all the rest of the hosts up and place them in the and place them in the tabernacle. Right? We would, so that kind of answers the question. Good, uh, John. Uh, in like a strictly material sense, like when does the piece of bread become the Eucharist? Would be like during the mass when it's in the. Yeah. Or, um, on the on the altar. Okay. Yeah. Or was it, would it be before? At the moment of consecration. So when I say this is my body, <laughs> it's the so, Eucharist. So is there a difference? Like if one of those pieces of bread accidentally gets lost or thrown away before the mass, is it different than if it's after the mass? Definitely. Yeah. So those yeah. pieces of bread are like made in like a factory. They're just yeah. They're just well. They're made by most of the time. They're made by nuns. <laughs> so, yeah. We like to support nuns. Oh, yeah, it's just regular bread. It's just bread. Until the, until the priest says the words of Jesus, which changes. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm going to go Amanda first. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, maybe? Yeah, First Corinthians eleven. And yes, I don't remember exactly what it said, but about the like, Yeah. So, do you want me to read it again? I'd be happy to. Yeah. yeah sure. Uh, so it's First Corinthians eleven, uh, twenty-seven. So he's just given the institution narrative again, and then he says, "Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord." Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For, if, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. What does that mean? To discern like, which part? <laughs> or all of it. How would you eat in an unworthy manner? Because yeah. usually you would think sure. if you're there... You're doing that is because usually because you're Christian and you're taking in sure. masks and whatever. Yeah. So what would that look like? Like what does that mean? Yeah. Well, let's say that um, you know if someone if someone um, doesn't believe, right? So that would be one thing, right? A lack of like a a lack of faith. They're just doing this out of like kind of custom or habit or uh, something like that. Um, maybe more serious even than that would be like. Uh, not living in accord with what Christ taught, right? Not expressing communion with the Lord uh, in exterior actions, right? I.e., I, I, or like sinning, right? Um, committing some sort of sin which, uh, with which, like that sin and charity cannot coexist. Right? So loving God, for example, makes us. In a, well, to love God, we have to love our neighbor, and so if you um, if you do so if you do something um, so against the love of neighbor or against the love of God, and then you say, "Well, I have communion," like by going to communion, you're saying, "I have like I I wish to be in communion with the Lord." Um, that's a that's like eating the the bread unworthy or eating the Lord unworthily. Does that make sense? Yes. Huh? And now my question is, where is that line that since we're humans and sure. we always sin? Yeah. Um, even if you, like, you try not to, but we're not perfect. Yeah. technically, after you're baptized, you are free from sin. So how does that all Yeah. So good. That's a great question. Uh, so, it, I mean, the, the um, where's the line? So let's, let's put it this way. So the line is traditionally known in, in Catholic theology as uh, like if one has, cre- has committed a grave sin or a mortal sin, right? You sh- like murder. Yeah, great example. That's a pretty easy one, right? Like, like if you murder someone, if you go and like kill someone, uh, you should not go to communion until you've gone to confession and repented, right? The confession is the exterior, is the exterior sign uh, and the, the cause of like coming back into right relationship with God, okay? Coming back into communion, being back in a state of grace. Does that make sense in that regard, Amanda? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so if you, if you do something like that, 
So basically it has to be a sin where uh, to commit a mortal sin, we've talked about this a little bit, but to commit a mortal sin, you have to know that something is a sin. It has to be grave matter and you have to choose to do it with like, I'm choosing to do this, right? Like I'm not just like kind of falling into it, right? Like I'm choosing to do this. Um, So uh, you think about, um, to, to give examples of those kind of things, it's uh, basically like the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you break one of the ten, like the actual commandment, right? <laughs> like not something that's derived from it, but the actual commandment. Now, there's other things as well, like the serious obligations that the church has on, on all of the faithful. For example, to go to Mass every Sunday. That's a serious grave obligation that the church has placed upon us. Um, you know, uh, yeah, all of those kind of things. Um, yes. It is, yeah. It is a it is a serious obligation, uh, but there's more reasons for it to be dispensed. Right? There's more reasons that it could be kind of abrogated um, in a in a certain situation. So, um, so b- back to your question, Amanda. Though there's a um, so if you think about in the essence of of what a mortal sin is, like it has to be something where you're going towards God, you're going towards God through the grace of baptism, and then you, you, you turn your back on loving God or loving your neighbor, right? Now, you can do that by saying, God, I hate you, right? But you could also do that by doing something that says, I, God, I hate you, or I hate that which you have created. Does that make sense? So uh, it doesn't have to be an explicit, like, choice against God. It could be, I'm choosing something else as my final end. Um, I'm choosing even like something like pleasure, right? I'm choosing pleasure or money or the estimation of other people or any of those things um, as greater as, as the God of my life, right? Which really ultimately leads to the, the first sin, which is pride, right? Like I'm choosing myself as the, the arbiter, um, of what's good. Mm-hmm. Father Doug, is there anything you'd add? So maybe, yeah, you know, to deceive Christ without believing him, to receive unworthy, and to deceive Christ without loving him, to receive unworthy. Uh, that's a good way to, excellent. So, as Father Will is saying, that's really uh, what makes a mortal sin a mortal sin, that it's incompatible with love. If you think by analogy in a human relationship, there would be way, different ways that you could fall short. Yeah or offend your friend, but you still do love your friend. But there would be other things that there's no way you could do them and love your friend at the same time. If you do them, that means you don't love them. Um, right? And so there are certain things in my relationship with God, in any sense, that um, are compatible with love of God. They don't break our relationship with God, but they do wound it. And, there's, and you know, we have to take that seriously, but they don't break it. But there are other things when we choose to do something that we know is seriously wrong and we deliberately choose it anyway, what we're saying really is that there's something that I love more than that. Uh, you know, I, I would rather um, steal the significant amount of money than observe God's law of justice. I would rather, you know, commit adultery than observe uh, God's law yep. or, or even, even though I have nothing important or pressing to do this Sunday morning, 
I will, I will prefer to, you know, sit at home and play video games than worship God, uh, even though I know that it's a serious, you uh, know, I know that it's a serious matter. Amen. Oh, some people can do that without knowing that it's a serious matter, and then it wouldn't be a good message. But, um, so those are examples, right? And if we've done that, then before we can receive the Lord, we need to be reconciled. We need to repent, which means to start to love him again, and, and we, we avail ourselves of the sacrament of confession. So like if you had a friend coming over for dinner that you had been a little bit rude to the day before, it would be okay if you just came over for dinner and you just kind of got through it. But if you had a friend coming over for dinner and you had uh, grievously insulted him the day before, before you have him to dinner, you would, you would need to be reconciled. You could have him, but you were going to need to go and... Uh, Admit what you did and be sorry and make amends. Yeah. And if you don't do that, there's going to be something seriously wrong with the dinner. It's going to be false. Yeah. If you just have them over anyway and ignore it, it'll be false. Yeah. And the same thing will be true in our relationship with Christ. That's good. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so thinking about receiving the Eucharist and the body of Christ is with you for that period of time that yeah. the you, the accidents continue. Yeah, okay. good. Yeah. And then the body of Christ is no longer with you, mm-hmm. but the Holy Spirit is still with you. Correct. The yeah, the grace of God that that unites you more closely to uh, the mystical body of Christ is still with you. Oh no 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 right. definitely not yeah. Well right so so you might uh, you might continue with yeah you might continue with an analogy right like you you continue in friendship with your friend even when you're not at that dinner party that Father Doug was talking right the dinner party is like you're with your friend you're with your friend you ha- you're there and then eventually you have to go home right like but you're still friends right there's still that union and in fact the dinner party going to that that dinner uh, made you perhaps more deeply ingrained as friends, right? Like it's cemented that friend, cemented that friendship a little bit more deeply. Does that make sense? That makes sense, but I, I'm just not 100% sure. I understand that you, we, we, we do still have our Lord with us. Y- yes. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Just <laughs> under. This is going to be the kind of yeah. So God is everywhere, right? Yes. According to his omniscience. Divinity, right? He's everywhere. In response to the, where can I flee from your spirit or where can I go? You know, you can't get away from him even if you want to. So he's, he's everywhere in that sense. And if we're in a state of grace, he's in us in a special way because he's, he is causing a spiritual effect in our soul by which he lives in our soul. Okay. Uh, the spirit lives in our soul and so does the father and the son. What's different, though, in those few minutes after receiving communion is that not only is, is Christ spiritually present with us, as he always is, but he's bodily present with us. So just like if you had been one of the 12 apostles, Jesus would have been spiritually present with you even if you went away from where he was. And, but there would have been something special about the moments when you were with him, you know? And then if you wandered out to do some preaching, you would still be in your heart, but you would bodily be separated from him. And then when he came back to the camp, you would be with him. And that's kind of like yeah. what you could think about. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Amanda, one more, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up.
It's good. why you're not supposed to eat before. Um, well, so I guess uh, the, the tradition of the church is that the, it used, so the fast used to be, the fast now is one hour before you receive communion, right? Which is, is not very long to not eat um, unless you're like a 14-year-old boy. Um, so, uh, right, like that's, that's about the only set of people, I remember my brother would eat like every 30 seconds. Um, anyway, so um, it used to be that you didn't eat for like from midnight the night before, maybe in the really early days, it was like the whole day before or something like that. Um, and so there was like a, a, it was a, it was a time of preparation for the Lord's coming, right? So fasting, this goes back and we'll talk about fasting at some point. Fasting uh, allows us to feel hunger allows us to feel hunger in order to point us to the spiritual hunger that we ought to always have to be with the Lord. Okay, so there's, there's still that tradition then in the church that before you eat uh, the body and blood of Christ, you should abstain from regular food in order that you might kind of like be hungry and that could remind you of the, 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 the spiritual reality of your hunger. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Other, okay, I said well, that was the last question. I can't ask if there's any more questions. Uh, great. Guys, we're going to finish this next lesson next time. Maybe, uh, uh, I'm not sure who's teaching next week. I can't remember. I'll actually, won't, you are? Oh, perfect. Father Doug will, will continue with the sacrifice of the Mass. We'll talk about the Mass. Um, and you can teach the other stuff too real quick. Just put it all together. Okay, well, I'm going to close with a prayer. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, um, thank you so much for calling us uh, together today and to be with you and to be with one another. Help us to grow in faith. Um, help us to grow in hope and help us to grow in love. In particular, we pray that we might uh, have eyes to recognize you in the Most Holy Eucharist, to see that you are our hope, and to love you ever more deeply each day. We ask these things through you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.